Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is a DC Spotlight episode. Uh, you probably noticed the sound isn't quite as good as you're used to. You'll also notice that there's no video. Um, obviously, you're listening to it as a podcast, but you can't head over to the Comic Boom channel and find video of this because Rocky was unavailable, and I am in a hotel room in Denver uh, because of the day job. But didn't want to let you guys down. Wanted to get this episode out, especially because there's a ton of important DC books today. So I wanted to be sure and get a chance to talk about them. So there's 15 books. It's a pretty big week. Probably not going to go in depth as we normally do, uh, especially without Rocky here to bounce ideas off of. But with that being said, let me go ahead and kick it off with Action Comics number 1042, The War World Saga Part 7. This is from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Ricardo Federici is the artist. Lee Luffridge does colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, it's hard to kind of overestimate or sing enough praises for Ricardo Federici's art. Uh, I know that a lot of people are used to seeing his art as, uh, as covers. He's a fantastic cover artist, but his art really shines. He's, you know, he, I, I understand that he probably doesn't do more sequentials because this painted digital style that he has is, uh, it probably takes a lot of time. It's probably pretty time consuming, especially with the level of detail that he puts in. But man, he, his sense of storytelling, uh, I know the word cinematic for comics gets thrown around a lot, especially uh, probably started with Brian Hitch's work in the Ultimates, but that's really the best way that I can describe Federici's work. I mean, his sense of where to put the camera, uh, especially in terms of zooming in and zooming out, uh, how he frames the panels in terms of, okay, I'm going to show emotion by giving a close-up of the face, but I'm not just going to do a close-up of the face, which, you know, so many people do. I'm going to frame it out as this kind of letterbox, you know, so you get more context uh, with a little bit of body language or a little bit of background color to kind of help set the mood. So, uh, it, I mean, he's just fantastic. It, the art is just so, so good. As far as the story itself, um, you know, this has been, this story by uh, Philip Kenny Johnson has been a little inconsistent for me. Some issues, I love it. Other issues, I'm like, this just doesn't feel at all like a Superman story. Uh, that's how I felt about last issue, but this issue, it swings back the other way. I enjoyed this issue. I thought it very much felt like a, a Superman story. Uh, he still doesn't have his powers. He's still, you know, fighting at this weaker level. I'm still not 100% on board with all the hoops that had to be uh, jumped through in order to get to this point with him depowered. But all that being said, it, it does feel like Superman. Kennedy Johnson does understand who Clark Kent is, who Kal-El is in terms of, uh, you know, what he's fighting for, what he stands for, what his beliefs are, how he's willing to die for those beliefs. So, you know, I can't fault him for that. That has been consistent throughout. The level of action has not, though. And uh, maybe that's why I enjoyed this issue so much, because there's a ton of action in it. So, uh, yeah, I really liked it. Basically, what happens in the issue, uh, if you remember last time, all the... Warzoons had gone down to uh, attack all of the uh, prisoners. They decided they were too dangerous to have there with Superman 
kind of rallying them into this rebel force. Uh, so in this issue, we, we basically, it's one big fight between Superman and uh, the rebels that he's trying to, or prisoners he's trying to turn into rebels and uh, the war zooms and OMAC who has been recruited to their side uh, and, and Superman and his team fighting against the war zooms. So no resolution, although the Mongol who is does show up at the end to say, okay, if this is what needs to be done, uh, if this is the final battle, you know, I'll be the one to kill, uh, to kill Superman. So it definitely seems like we are moving toward a resolution. I kind of hope we are. I mean, seven issues of this. Uh, like I said, it's been a little inconsistent. Plus, we have Dark Crisis coming up, which I'll talk about with Justice League 75. And as we all know, the Justice League's going to die, which means Superman's off the table. So there's a little bit of inconsistencies there, which kind of bug me. But anyway, we'll, uh, we'll get to that. The issue does also start off with uh, Lois dictating a story. Uh, she's talking uh, about Theo La and the uh, the Philosians and uh, kind of what's going on with with them and the, the research she's trying to do and, and understanding of how to save uh, Theo La after the uh, events that happened a few issues ago with her being exposed to the Genesis energy and the assassins that the Mongol who is sent to assassinate her. So she ends up at the end of the issue going to talk to John Henry Irons because she realizes that when Superman left Earth, and he would have entrusted the Genesis fragment to John Henry Irons, and that's uh, exactly uh, who he did uh, entrust it to. So there's a little bit of a subplot going on there. Uh, we also get the backup story of Martian Manhunter which was also a little bit inconsistent, uh, but ended on a high note from Sean Aldridge. Adriana Mello is the artist, hi-fi on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. It, I heard rumors that this was supposed to lead into an ongoing. It definitely feels that way with the way that it ends up. Uh, I do like what Sean Aldridge does in terms of exploring who John Jones is as a character. I just wish we'd gotten some of that sooner. He saved it all for the last issue uh, and it wasn't kind of clear, at least not clear enough to me, and maybe that's on me, maybe I didn't read it closely enough, um, that a lot of what he was doing here was kind of giving John a reset. You know, John has, he, and, and again, this isn't 100% accurate, but you know, like DC's history changes all the time. So who knows, maybe it's how it is now. But John talks a lot about, you know, not having friends, not having a connection, uh, but I would say that's not necessarily true if you go back and look at the era of the, the Justice League that DeMatteis, Giffen, and McGuire did. Uh, he was really close to a, to a lot of those people. But, you know, that is many, many years ago, and maybe it's not in canon anymore or what have you, although supposedly everything counts now. Uh, but it was just kind of strange to hear John talking about being, being lonely and having all these identities where when somebody starts to get close, uh, he's so worried about losing them. Uh, like he lost his family and his uh, his whole race on Mars. So he doesn't want to let anybody get close he's, because he doesn't, then, then he can't lose somebody again, right? So that's a very human uh, way to live life, you know, to put up those walls for somebody who's suffered trauma. So I do like that that makes uh, Martian Manhunter relatable. But again, I just don't know that 
that Sean should have Aldridge should have waited till the sixth issue, because now I, like, and not to say that the comic has been bad, but at no point have I felt like okay I would want to read more of this exact story or this this writer on this character uh, up to this point. I haven't disliked it. I don't think it's terrible or anything, but with this issue six, it's like he saved all the best for last almost too much. Now I do. Now I would want, based on this final part, I would want a Martian Manhunter series from Sean Aldridge, but I don't think you can, you can do that. And, and again, granted, these are backups. Uh, this would be the end of issue two if it was a, a normal series. And I admit that I always say you got to give something at least two issues. So maybe just the way that it was structured, it had to be done this way. Um, but yeah, I guess we're not at the end of the day getting a Martian Manhunter series from Sean Aldridge. Uh, and, and I'm a little disappointed in that because I thought it was well done. And I thought the Adriana Mello art was well done as, uh, as well. Uh, she's a, getting very good at uh, storytelling, kind of uh, more in the DC house style which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's very classic a way to tell a story in terms of a lot of mid shots. Nothing's ever confusing. The transitions from panel to panel are very solid. Uh, primary colors for the coloring from Hi-Fi, which again gives it that classic superhero feel. So all in all, uh, a solid story. Uh, and it definitely ended on a high note. And uh, like I said, I'm a little disappointed that we're not gonna get uh, an ongoing Martian Manhunter series. All right, up next we have Aquaman number three. This is from writers Chuck Brown and Brandon Thomas. Art in this issue is by Max Rayner, colors by Hi-Fi, letters by Anvil Design. Uh, we learn a little bit more about what's going on here. Um, apparently these sleeper agents that have been being activated all around the world are part of like a fail-safe program that the uh, Atlantean military or royalty had put in place a long, long time ago, which I'm not exactly sure how, I mean, these sleeper agents are human, sort of, or are they Atlantean? I, I'm not, I guess they must be Atlantean, right? Because it couldn't have been put in place decades ago because these people are not that old. But at the same time, if they're Atlanteans, wouldn't people be getting suspicious if they don't seem to age? Like, so it, I, I guess, comics, right? Don't think about it too much. But anyway, it's, it was put into place. And Arthur um, talks, uh, and con he's confronted by Mira in this issue, because he admits to her that when he came back from being, being dead, which was in the Kelly Sue DeConnick run, he wasn't 100% forthcoming with her. She assumed that he got all his memories back, and he assumed the same, um, even though he knew in the back of his mind, he wasn't 100% whole. And that's what has allowed somebody to take over this program of sleeper agents. That somebody is Scavenger, who's an old school Aquaman villain, who's really been sort of a mustache twirling villain in the past. Um, I give credit to Chuck Brown and Brandon Thomas for sort of leveling him up. So that, that's what's going on. Uh, why Black Manta is involved, other than, you know, it was revealed in Chuck Brown's miniseries that he has uh, Atlantean heritage himself. Um, Jackson is obviously really wrapped up in, in all these events and he wants to be sure Jackson's okay because Jackson is his son.
but how did he know to get involved in the first place? So again, it's a, it's a little clunky. It's not as clean or as smooth uh, in terms of motivations and reasoning and kind of the, the high level um, sort of structure of the story as I, as I wish it was. Now, that being said, I think it uh, is a good story in terms of the personal interaction. I like the interactions between Black Mana and Aquaman. You know, I, when Black Mana says, you know, if it wasn't for Jackson, I, I'd be attacking you right now. So that at least feels very authentic for uh, Black Manta. Also, the interactions between Aquaman and Mira, uh, you know, they have a volatile relationship. Their relationship isn't one like Lois and Clark, for example, where, you know, there's, um, there's no secrets and uh, everything is out on the table and they're just, they can almost read each other's minds. Uh, Aquaman and Mira's relationship has always been much more, I don't want to say dysfunctional, but much more volatile. Volatile is really the best word. Um, more intense in, in a lot of ways. So uh, I think it works on, on that level. Uh, the art from Max Rayner is, is pretty well done. Um, it doesn't flow as well as some other artists do in terms of the underwater scenes. Um, I mean, there are times where their hair is floating around or, or what have you, but I don't know, maybe it's the coloring. Um, but to, to me, the other than just seeing some hair kind of wildly floating around when people are underwater, the underwater scenes don't stand out as being underwater as opposed to the ones that are above water, like when Jackson Hyde, who ended last issue by torturing Orm, Orm if you remember, Ocean Master, and found out that the person who's pulling the strings on this sleeper agent's uh, program is in Gotham City. And like I said, it is Scavenger who is being leveled up, which again, I do appreciate because Aquaman doesn't have enough of a rogues gallery. Uh, and I like that it's Gotham City because that gives a chance for Jackson to meet up with Batwoman and for them to team up, which is also a really good uh, and interesting dynamic when they play off each other. Uh, but again, these scenes in Gotham, while cool and seeing Jackson in action, uh, no pun intended, action Jackson, uh, seeing him help some firefighters put out a fire is also cool. Um, again, those those scenes above water, they don't look that different than the scenes below water <laughs> in a lot of ways. So I don't know. I, I know it's challenging to draw underwater scenes. So I'm, I'm not disparaging Max Rainer at all. I think his art is, is done really, really well. But it's just it's uh, an area where I think he could uh, he could improve. Um, but overall, uh, I really enjoyed this issue. I won't go so far as to say the best issue of the series so far, um, but I think, yeah, I think it's close. It's close. Uh, I, like, I enjoyed that first issue as well. So uh, it's a toss up, but uh, overall I'm enjoying this, this series despite uh, the anti-hero feel of Black Manta, which I don't necessarily agree with, so. Anyway, let's move on. Next book I'm going to talk about is Shadow War Part 3, Deathstroke Incorporated Number 8, written by Joshua Williamson. Art is by Paolo Pantolina. Colors are by Romulo Fardo Jr. Letters by Steve Wands. There's a fantastic B cover by Chris Burnham and Nathan Fairbairn, which um, mimics an old uh, Mike Zeck cover, which is just, just really cool. Just really, really cool looking. In fact, it, it looks like 
uh, it mimics the cover um, of Deathstroke number one, if I'm not mistaken, the series that uh, we had back in the day. And I think it was in, pretty sure it was in the 90s. So anyway, as I said, it's uh, Shadow War Part 3, which has been a really great story from, uh, from Joshua Williamson. So uh, in this issue, um, Slade and his quote unquote son, uh, you know, this, um, this respawn who's basically uh, not a clone necessarily because they took Tal- Talia's DNA and, <coughs> excuse me, Talia's DNA and Slade's DNA and they created a, a, another person. So kind of his biological son and Talia's bi- biological son, but grown in a lab. Um, so they go to one of Slade's hideouts because they know Slade is being hunted by the, the League of Assassins um, because Talia believes that Slade killed her father. Uh, so they're able to hide out there for a little while, but it's not too long before Damien and Ravager find them. There's a, there's a big fight. Meanwhile, Batman is trying to convince Talia not to go after Deathstroke, not to kill him. Um, but Talia has her own ideas and uh, her and Batman don't see eye to eye, obviously, which leaves Batman sort of out in the cold. So uh, as I said, Damien and uh, Ravager show up and that's how it ends to be continued in Robin number 13, which is also out today, we are told. So we'll be talking about that one in a little bit. So a bit of a setup issue, not a ton of action other than seeing Batman after him and Talia have a disagreement uh, he fights some of the, the League of Shadows, League of Assassins to, uh, to escape and go looking for uh, Deathstroke on his own. And, and I mean, the whole reason Batman went to talk to Talia in the first place is because he knows that she's going to be upset that Slade killed uh, her father seemingly, but he knows that it's, it's probably not true, or at least he suspects it. But he, he wants to find Damien because Damien has said, hey, I'm going to go kill Slade. And obviously, Batman wants to prevent Damien from killing anybody, whether he thinks they uh, deserve it or not. So, again, a bit of a transitional issue, not a ton of action, but the art by uh, Paolo Pantolina. If you haven't seen his art before, it's pretty dynamic. He does have a thick line, uh, and his faces can have a tendency to get sort of angular at times. Um, but for the most part, I think he's, he's a pretty good artist. Um, I wish he would use a little bit lighter line weights on his hair, though, because the hair, uh, hairstyles of his characters always look like, um, like a Lego character, like, oh, that's hair that doesn't move at all, you know, because the lines are, the line weights are so thick, so I do wish that he, he would lighten it up, and it would give the hair just a, a little more sense of movement, but I'm super nitpicking on that, um, so anyway, uh, decent issue of, of Deathstroke. I am enjoying the, the Warzone story, our Shadow War story. Uh, okay, up next we have Detective Comics number 1059, The Seven Part One. Now we know that Rom V is gonna be taking over Detective with this sort of gothic opera in style Batman story, which it's been a while since we've had kind of a big 
scale gothic Batman story. So I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, Mariko Tamaki is still on the book for at least a few more issues, um, which I don't, I don't know. I mean, she's a good writer, a great writer, in fact, and I really did enjoy the shadows of the bat story that uh, was a lot of uh, Arkham Tower. Um, but announcing the big name like uh, Rom V to take over, along with Zdarsky on Batman, I hope people are still paying attention to what Tamaki is doing on the book in the meantime, because she's still turning in really, really great work. Um, and in this particular issue, she's joined by a co-writer, Nadia Shamas, I believe is how you say her name. She's co-writing. And then we have the uh, fantastic Yvonne Hreis on pencils. And Danny Mickey does inks with Brad Anderson on colors and Ariana Mare on letters. Um, I think this seven refers to seven innocent people or seemingly innocent people who are out there committing crimes, planting bombs, murdering people, um, just doing horrific things uh, and then sort of turning themselves into the police. And Batman is trying to figure out why. Uh, one of these people who does this thing is a judge that apparently is the uh, daughter of Deb Donovan. So I think uh, I'm almost positive that Deb Donovan is uh, a character that Mariko Tamaki created. You know, she's the reporter for the Gotham Gazette and she's very capable. She's very no nonsense. And having this, um, having this daughter of hers uh, as the judge, as a judge is pretty interesting. Um, and the, the issue starts off and this, this judge, Caroline Donovan is her name. She comes running out of her judge's chamber saying there's a bomb, there's a bomb. Batman goes in, he actually finds two bombs. Uh, they explode. Donovan ends up uh, being injured and going to the hospital. Uh, and you, you kind of think, okay, who's after her? And we get to see Deb Donovan while wanting to investigate from the uh, reporter perspective of her. She's obviously very concerned as, as a mother. So that's an interesting aspect. And I, I hope that, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily expect that Ram, uh, Ram V would have Deb Donovan in his story because he's probably been planning it for a while. And like I said, uh, Mariko Tamaki created Deb Donovan and uh, she's relatively new. But I certainly hope that future Batman writers, maybe Zdarsky, maybe somebody else, use Deb Donovan uh, because she's a fantastic addition to uh, to the Batman supporting cast. No, she's much more, you know, not that Vicki Vale's a bad character, but she's Vicki Vale, just the relationship she has with Batman sort of lends itself to automatically thinking of her as a damsel in distress or somebody who's going to get in trouble and Batman goes and has to save. Deb Donovan feels much more capable and there's no you know, the, just the way she is as a character and the way she holds herself, there's no kind of romantic undertones. Like you never get the feeling it's going to be like Bruce Wayne and, De and Deb Donovan going out on a date or something like that. She's a little bit older, uh, a little more matronly, I guess, in a way. So uh, I do think she's an interesting character and I hope to see more of her. So um, again, the, the, the thing that I'm struck with 
And again, I liked that Shadows of the Bat story that we got, uh, especially because Batman was such a small part of it. He didn't show up till the end. And yeah, it didn't end you know, exactly as I might have thought it would, but it was still enjoyable. Uh, but really, when I look at the work Mariko Tamaki did on Detective before that, and now with this issue coming out of it, I almost, in a way, wish that we hadn't had that weekly. Um, granted, we only would have had four issues instead of those 12 if it stayed monthly. So, you know, I, yeah, I go back and forth. Like, it's great to have that much Mariko Tamaki detective comics written material but before that and now after i just love her characterization of bruce wayne like it's if we don't get hardly any bruce wayne if any at all in the batman comic so i love that in detective we get some bruce wayne we get some of his characterization we get interaction in this particular issue between bruce wayne and deb donovan um yeah i just i just think it's great i think mariko tamaki uh, has done a fantastic job on Detective. And I'm almost sad that she's leaving. Um, so hopefully she's going to go out on a high note with this seven story, why these innocent people are doing these things. We don't know. Batman suspects it has something to do with the Riddler, who is doing like a daily podcast or broadcast of some kind of a radio show every day, asking riddles. He looks very different than we're used to seeing Edward Nigma in terms of he still has the you know, green hat, bowler looking hat with a question mark and the suit and tie and everything. But he's got a handlebar mustache and a goatee or a Van Dyke, I guess you would say, um, which that's not something I've ever seen uh, on Edward Nigma. So interesting take. And uh, I love the detective feel of the story, the mystery feel of the story uh, that we're going, going to explore, at least for a few issues. There is also a, uh, a backup. Um, obviously the story about the red-headed guy uh, who Penguin <laughs> anticlimactically killed at the end of Matthew Rosenberg's backup, uh, that story's concluded. So we get a new backup, it's Gotham Girl and uh, starts with a splash page. And as soon as you see that splash page, at least me, I knew right away, oh, it's uh, David Lapham. And yeah, sure enough, he does the art Cena Grace is the writer. Trish Mulvihill does the colors and Rob Lee on letters. Um, it's a fun story. David Lapham is one of the great storytellers uh, in comics of all time. Um, not dissimilar from what, um, uh, who's I saying, Adriana Mello, um, that sort of that DC house style, you know, with the, the mid-level shots, the nine panel grids, um, just sort of real classic cartooning. Uh, and, and David Lapham does that really, really well. Um, it's a little heavy on the line weights at times, but it's David Lapham. I, I don't mind <laughs> because his storytelling is, is so good. Uh, Senior Grace, in terms of the story, is exploring the fact that Gotham Girl is definitely still a, a damaged person after what happened to her brother, uh, how he died and was brought back and she had to see him you know, suffer again. She spent some time in Arkham Tower. Um, and yeah, she's definitely damaged in, in a lot of ways, but she doesn't want that to define her. She doesn't want everybody to look on her with pity or look on her with that knowledge that, you know, she's not okay 
quote unquote. Um, she just needs some time to grow and to mature. So uh, I like that Cena is leaning into the trauma. I think you have to with this character. Um, and you feel bad. You feel bad for everything that Claire has gone through. Um, still an incredibly powerful character. And we know from Tom King's story that the more she uses her powers, the faster she kind of burns up her own, uh, her own lifespan. And it's not like she's necessarily out there looking to be a hero. She's sort of just looking to, to make friends and have a normal life. But with all the trauma that she's been through, that's easier said than done. Uh, okay, up next, we have Aquaman Green Arrow, Deep Target number seven. This is the final issue of this uh, miniseries. Brandon Thomas is the writer, Ronan Cliquet on pencils, Eau Claire Albert on inks, Ulysses Ariola on colors, Josh Reed on letters. Uh, we get the answer to what wasn't quite right uh, at the end of last issue. You could really sense that Aquaman, Arthur Curry was hiding something. It turns out what he was hiding is the world is not quite right. You know, that the uh, General Anderton and the Scorpio uh, group were messing with time and things got kind of screwed up because they went so far back in time that they changed key things that like changed evolution and history and whatnot. And we saw that like these humanoid reptiles were actually in charge and they thought they had set everything back correctly, but it turns out no. The reason Aquaman was kind of keeping it close to the vest is because he's in a situation not dissimilar from the Aquaman movie actually, where his mother is still alive and he and his brother Orm, you know, the, Orm is not angry at Arthur, does not blame Arthur for the death of their mother. And so Orm and, and Arthur are actually ruling uh, Atlantis side by side uh, as co-kings and getting along. And so, you know, Aquaman is saying, hey, you know, this, this world is good enough for me. Might not be exactly what it's supposed to be, but close enough. And I get to have my mom. And I get to have uh, a little bit more happiness. But uh, Green Arrow is able to convince him, hey, it's not right. Uh, you know, you can't be selfish. And Aquaman is a, you know, a hero. Um, and I, I don't know that this sort of selfish act uh, really plays into reminding us that he's a hero. I don't know that. Arthur would do that, but maybe it's leaning into the fact that, hey, let's make him more relatable than he would be tempted. But ultimately, him and, uh, and Oliver team up and they're able to put things back the way things are, are really supposed to be. And it ends with a, a poignant moment of, uh, of Arthur kneeling uh, next to his mother's crypt. So um, this ended up being a, a fun story self-contained it really hit its stride in the second half the first half was a lot of action with not a lot of answers or understanding of what was going on um the second had, half had just as much action uh, a little more emotion and uh you know filling out those those answers and context so i think it'll read very well as uh, as a trade kind of a, a longish trade because seven issues um but again, and I've said this throughout, one of the best things about it is the fact that it's completely standalone. You don't need to read any other DC stuff. You can just read this on its own. Um, 
so you know anybody looking to get into comics or a fan of green arrow or a fan of aquaman or a fan of the movies this is something you can give them and they, they don't need any context or any explanation on anything else that's going on uh, i will also say that the art from ronan cliquet throughout has been really fantastic uh, the colors here by ulysses areola are uh, traditionally uh, primary colors so you're getting that classic superhero feel and yeah, just really solid storytelling from Ronan Cliquet. He's not a, an artist you hear his name a lot at DC, but based on the strength of this uh, series, I would expect him to be getting more, more work over there because he's done a really, really great job here. Especially because he's having to draw things like humanoid uh, dinosaurs and crazy time travel technology and whatnot. And he's handled everything uh, that's been thrown at him really, really well. So my hat's off to him. Uh, okay, up next we have Batman Beyond the White Knight, book two. This is from Sean Murphy, who does the script and the art. <laughs> uh, the colors are by Dave Stewart, and World Design does the letters. Uh, we get a little more context into the uh, Murphyverse, I guess it's called, a version of uh, Terry McGinnis, we find out why he was breaking into the Batcave. We get a little bit of his history of who he is in this universe. And the rest of the issue is devoted to interactions between Jack Napier, who we thought was dead, and Bruce Wayne, who just broke out of prison last issue. So we find out how it is that Bruce can see Jack Napier when Jack Napier supposedly is dead. Uh, and the interaction between Bruce and Jack Napier, or the Joker in his human form after he's been quote unquote cured, right? Which is the whole point of Batman White Knight and the Sean Gordon Murphy verse. Um, those interactions are still top notch. Uh, we also get a lot of Dick Grayson in the issue, which is sort of interesting. Uh, the, the dynamic of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd in this Murphy verse. In fact, there's an essay in the back of the issue where Sean Gordon Murphy talks about inadvertently putting it in his first White Knight series that Jason Todd was the first Robin. And then um, having to like fix that and, and think about having to get creative for why that's the case and, and what it changes about Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne's relationship, how it changes Bruce Wayne and Jason Todd's relationship, how it informs who Dick Grayson is now, you know, the head of GTO, um, you know, this sort of paramilitary Gotham police force that's separate from the Gotham City Police Department. Um, and there's, you know, the questions, you know, this is not a, um, a philosophical debate that's unique to comics. This exists in our own world, right? And Dick is saying, look how much safer, the, you know, the streets of Gotham are and even Barbara Gordon is saying, yeah, but look at everything we've given up. So it's always that push and pull in society between safety and freedom, right? Like we all know if you've flown to the United States since 9-11, you have less freedom uh, than you did before. Like it used to, before 9-11, anybody could go to the gate and, you know, say bye to their loved ones before they got on the plane and whatnot. Uh, now you can't even get near the, the gate unless you have a boarding pass. You have to take off your shoes and have to go through a metal detector, you can have your bag searched, all those things that you've given up. 
uh, in terms of safety. So uh, that's the case here with Gotham. It's uh, something we saw explored with the magistrate storyline. Obviously, GTO is not to that level of fascism that the magistrate was, but it's got it's got a little bit of it in there. Uh, and the fact that Dick Grayson is so gun ho for it, while Barbara sees it as something negative, creates an interesting dynamic between those two characters as well. Because we know in the regular DC universe, they're so they're so close, and so many people want them, um, you know, to have this long term relationship or whatnot. So uh, this is definitely something different. Uh, I would say that it would be a little tough to just pick up Batman Beyond the White Knight and hit the ground running without having some knowledge of Curse of the White Knight, which was the second miniseries, and White Knight, which was the first one. But those are available in trade. And uh, Sean Gordon Murphy, while I'm not a huge fan of his aesthetic in terms of just his style, it's very angular. Um, and it's also a little bit more um, kind of gritty than I would like, a little more sketchy, not quite as clean as I normally would prefer my art. Um, despite that, he is, a, he is a good storyteller. Also, the backgrounds are a little bit light a lot of times. Um, and it's like, I could take the angular if the backgrounds were a little more detailed and the art wasn't so, so sketchy, you know, if it was a little cleaner, or if it was less angular and a little more organic, then I could take the, the sketchiness of it and the light background. So. I don't know. It's just the, the combination of all three of those things. Um, but there's no doubt that the man is really talented and he creates some fantastic visual images for skylines and for tech. And uh, again, he's a fantastic storyteller. He brings a lot of emotion to his art, a lot of emotion to his art. So uh, yeah, while he might be my favorite artist in terms of style, uh, he is a, a fantastic storyteller, and I, I feel like he's really improved. He's really improved his visual storytelling and visual uh, narration and visual pacing since the first White Knight series. This is a little more sophisticated in terms of camera angle and uh, the way he sets up the shots and in terms of zooming in, zooming out, what he chooses to show, use of negative space. Um, use of shadow, all of that is getting more sophisticated as he gets more comfortable telling a story, both narratively and visually, most likely, because uh, he hasn't done a whole heck of a lot of writing. Uh, I think he's kind of made his name as, as an artist. Um, and then based on the, the uh, wild success of, of White Knight, DC has you know, kind of given him this universe to play in and uh, it's great to see it because it's doing a great job with it. Uh, okay, up next, we're gonna talk about Harley Quinn number 14. This is from writer Stephanie Phillips. Riley Rosmo handles the art, Yvonne Placencia on colors and will design on letters. Um, solid issue. We saw last issue that Harley Quinn was framed uh, for some murders. And uh, in this issue, Batwoman, 
again, Batwoman showing up in two, in two books this week, which is interesting. Um, Batwoman actually goes to break her out because she, as she's investigating some other murders, she realizes that there's been several murders committed with the same MO that Harley Quinn supposedly used, but Harley Quinn has been in Blackgate and could not have committed these. So I think, and it happens right at the end, Batwoman goes and rescues her. And it's like, I think she goes to rescue her because she's thinking, okay, well, whoever is framing Harley must be somebody Harley knows or somebody that Harley, uh, you know, has history with. Why else would they choose to, to dress as Harley and frame Harley? So uh, they're going to team up and try to solve uh, what's going on. Now, the characterization of Harley in, uh, in this series from Stephanie Phillips, I've talked a lot about how intelligent Harley is. That's my favorite sort of Harley where they lean into that. That's why I liked the Sean Gordon Murphy version of Harley. If we're just talking about the Sean Gordon Murphy verse. Also my all-time favorite Harley story, the Joker Harley Criminal Sanity uh, Black Label series from Cami Garcia with art by Jason Badawer and Miko Suyan, where Harley was basically a criminal profiler and didn't have any of the zaniness. Obviously, Stephanie Phillips is working with you know the Harley in, uh, in main continuity, so she's got to have a little bit of that zaniness, but she doesn't lean too far into it. But there's enough moments, there's enough one-liners, there's enough fun um, that I think classic uh, Harley fans are, should still be satisfied with what is, uh, what is being done. So uh, I think if you're a fan of Harley, you're probably enjoying what's going on. And I've talked before about Riley Rosmo's art sort of growing on me. He is a good choice for the series because he does bring... Um, his very stylized version of, uh, of the DC universe to this, but it's, it's cutesy in a way, and it's sort of wild in a way, and it allows that, that fun feeling of Harley to, uh, to come through. So, uh, and I think he, he's gotten a little less stylized. This, his art here is a little more reined in than I've seen in, in the past. So um, I know there's been some mixed reviews on this series, but it's definitely working for me. I mean, I, I normally not even, I normally don't even read Harley um, and I've been enjoying this series. So take that for what you will. Uh, all right, up next we have Robin number 13. Yeah, number 13, this is Shadow War part four. Talked about Shadow War Part 3 earlier with the Deathstroke Incorporated number eight. Uh, this is written by Joshua Williamson. Roger Cruz does the pencils. Norm Ratman on inks. Luis Guerrero on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Kicks off with a big battle between Damien and Ravager against Respawn and Deathstroke. And Deathstroke ends up blowing up his hideout that he and Respawn had, uh, had just gotten to earlier that day but he knows that there's no way he can stop Damien from coming after him this is only going to slow him down and he's also worried that with Damien showing up that Batman won't be far behind um, and sure enough it's not too long before Batman 
shows up and Ravager and Damien um, quickly escape uh, the explosion and, and confront Respawn and, uh, and Deathstroke on the uh, rooftop of uh, an adjacent building. And Respawn is trying to convince Damien and Ravager, hey, you need to believe him. He didn't kill him. He didn't kill Ra's al Ghul. I was with him the whole time. And Damien's like, why should I believe you? And Ravager reveals himself. He says, because I'm you, sort of. And Damien is like really taken aback. Like, this has got to be a trick. And Respawn explains, it's not. I, you know, part of why I hated you is because you had what I, I couldn't have. You had an actual mother and a father. I was grown in a lab. So Ra's al Ghul could run experiments on me that he couldn't run on you. And <laughs> Damien is like, I have a brother? Then he actually gets excited. I have a brother. Um, so it's pretty interesting. And they actually start fighting a little bit, um, kind of trading blows until Batman shows up and says, enough. And he automatically assumes that Damien or, or Deathstroke rather had something to do with this respawn character. Uh, and when he sees respawn, he's like, who are you? And uh, Deathstroke says, that's my boy, not yours. So they each sort of have this, uh, this son figure, which again, I go back to how interesting it is that um, Christopher Priest, who we had on the show, I guess a few months ago now, talked about how he wanted, you know, he introduced in his Deathstroke run the possibility that Damien was Slade's son and not Bruce's son, biologically. And DC pushed back against that and said, no, we can't do that. We have too many plans for Damien. And Christopher was like, he's still like Damien is still Bruce's son because Bruce has raised him and cared for him and whatever, even if it's not by bi his biological son. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I just find it interesting that now they've done it in a way, tried to have their cake and eat it too, by making this respawn character um, sort of a Damien clone, <laughs> basically, um, but as Deathstroke's son. So anyway, Damien says, yeah, I, I actually believe him because uh, I, I can read myself, like Respawn is enough me and I know what I do when I'm not telling the truth and when I am telling the truth and Respawn is telling the truth. Um, and so while they're there talking about that, we see one of Deathstroke's uh, lieutenants, Dr. Moon is there, he's been tortured and um, he's given up the... Uh, the location of Deathstroke and the secret society and whatnot. And the uh, League of Assassins says, we're going to kill him unless you turn yourself in. Batman obviously is uh, urging them to go ahead and uh, urging uh, Deathstroke to turn himself in. Deathstroke doesn't. Moon is killed. And Batman blames uh, Deathstroke. Like, you could have stopped that. You could have done it. And Deathstroke's like, look, you know, if I turn myself in, they would kill me. And they'd still hunt down the society. It would have done no good, you know. And I get what Destro was saying. You can't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, but I also come, get where Batman is coming uh, from as well. So Batman says, I, I'm, I'm taking you in. And Deathstroke's like, what, what about Talia? You're blaming all this on me. I didn't do it. She could have set up the hit herself. Why aren't you going after her, Right. And uh, Batman doesn't really have a, a good excuse for that, but Deathstroke endangers some civilians. 
again, reminding us that he's not that nice of a guy. In fact, he's a straight up bad guy, which I think is what Williamson wants to remind us here uh, and uses that, uh, that grenade he throws uh, towards some civilians as a distraction to, uh, to get away. By the time Batman and Damien get back up on top of the roof, uh, they're gone. Ravager's gone, Respawn, Deathstroke, they're all gone. So uh, it does look like this is the reunion of Batman and Robin in a lot of ways um, because Batman, he, he actually apologizes. Like, you know, I, I know I failed you too many times in too many ways. And, uh, you know, uh, what can I do? Let's solve this case together. How can I prove uh, that I want to do that? And Damon says, let me drive. And they uh, head off to the bat plane to try to track down uh, Destro. So uh, I guess that's what's coming up next in this uh, Shadow War. So I'm really enjoying it. Um, I, I was a little critical of Joshua Williamson. I think Rocky and I both were when the Robin series first started because it felt like he had um, he had kind of rolled back on some of the maturity and personal growth that Damien had undergone in recent years. But he's definitely brought him back to that point and then even surpassed it. This is a much more mature Damien who, you know, he's still Damien. He's still a jerk at times, but uh, there's, a, there's a lot more wisdom there. And I, I appreciate that growth that he's having as a character. Cause honestly, it wasn't very likable before. Like I couldn't stand him. I know a lot of people liked the sort of jerky Damien, but I just didn't like reading stories with him in it. So uh, really enjoying Shadow War, though. Okay, up next we have Swamp Thing number 12. This is from writer Rom B. Mike Perkins is the artist. Mike Spicer on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Uh, it's Jericho Rose Part 2. It, it definitely seems like Rom B is still leaning into this idea of the two disparate storylines here. The, the Levi Kamei storyline that's all about nature. And then the Jack Hawksmore storyline, which is all about growth and industry and society. And then we have this villain who we uh, saw last issue, this lone pilgrim, um, who's a combination of what um, the, the corporation, the evil corporation has created along with that evil entity out in the desert, sort of. Uh, so in that way, it's sort of a dark reflection in a way of what we have on the hero side with the avatar of the green being Swamp Thing and the avatar of the city being Jack Hawksmore. We have this, this company um, and, uh, and this character even says, this lonely pilgrim says, Harper Pilgrim sought to shore up his legacy by building this company, this organism of consumption and production a force of creation and destruction. So all these opposing sides. Um, and so in a way, this, this uh, character who's been created, been this, this melding of this ancient sort of natural evil that was living in the desert with this uh, Harper Pilgrim uh, inspired uh, company that, or Harper Pilgrim founded company that has injected this guy with this demonic or horrific 
uh, evil, you know, and it's so black and dark. And Mike Spicer does a fantastic job of um, of depicting it. And so, yeah, they're opposite sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. Uh, obviously, the nature and uh, and progressive or progress or industry or whatever on the heroic side is two different characters as opposed to on the villain side, it's all wrapped up in, in one character, this uh, pale pilgrim, as he calls himself. I may wanderer no more, but now the pale pilgrim. Uh, so this is all heading toward a, uh, a confrontation, I suppose, in issue number 16, and they're, they're fascinating ideas. Um, we also see Jack Hawksmore discovering some ancient, um, maybe ancient is not the word, right word, but older progress in cities, like cities that have, he's in Detroit, finding some of the older parts of the city that have been built upon by newer parts of the city. Um, and thinking about that, you know, it's so easy to think about nature and the way it evolves and how it's ancient in a lot of ways. And it's a legacy feel of nature, cities and industry and whatnot don't go back as far, but you still can have that same sort of uh, buildup over generations. And it seems like that's how um, Jack Hawksmore and Swamp Thing, although they're completely at diametric sides of uh, the dynamic here with one nature, one city, uh, it's where they're gonna find some common ground. So we'll see how that all plays out uh, in the story. As far as the art, I mean, what can I say about uh, Mike Perkins' art? It's so detailed, very cinematic in scope, um, very epic, um, not necessarily real tight transitions. And what I mean by that is, you know, when, there's a lot of space, a lot of, a lot of stuff happens between panels, as opposed to, you know, a typical page might be somebody's at their front door, and then the next panel, they're opening their front door, next panel, they're walking in, next panel, they're in their kitchen or living room or whatever. Rom V is creating uh, such a big story that the, the time and the space between panels has to be a little bit more. Uh, just to move the story along. So the visual pacing of it is a little fast, uh, but I understand it and I don't necessarily mind it because the scripting that Ram V puts in, um, it melds very well with, it, it's paced out well and fills in the gaps very, very well. So I think fans of a Swamp Thing, especially epic Swamp Thing runs like, uh, Grant Morrison, or even going back to some of the original Len Wein stuff, uh, will probably be digging this, even though it's not Alec Holland. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Dark Knights of Steel. Uh, we're up to issue number six on this. This is from writer Tom Taylor. Yasmin Putri is the artist, colors by Eric Prianto, letters by Wes Abbott. Um, I, I go back and forth on this series. You know, last issue, it felt like maybe the L's were the antagonists of the series. Um, you know, the idea of this war between the 
kingdom of storms and the, the kingdom of the elves. What is Bruce Wayne, you know, going to do now that he was rescued by the Kents out in the country? And it was, it was Kal-El that, that betrayed his half-brother. But then in this one, Superman, Kal-El, he feels much more superheroic. Like, I, I don't know where the story's going. It feels so uneven in terms of character. And it's hard to figure out who's on whose side. Um, but it continues to be really fun and intriguing and interesting to see these different interpretations of these characters. You know, classic DC characters interpreted for, uh, you know, a medieval setting. We see the demon for the first time in this issue and when he transforms back into a human, it's not Jason Blood, it's Ra's al Ghul, which is awesome to think about, right? Because one of Ra's al Ghul's uh, nicknames is the demon head. And so it feels very natural or makes a lot of sense to have him be the uh, human host of, uh, of Etrigan. So uh, he's actually summoned, uh, the demon is summoned and then uh, by Constantine and then Constantine asks him, you know, I wanna speak to your, your human side. And that's when we learned that it's Ra's al Ghul. Now, the reason that Constantine summoned him in the first place was he was hoping to make a bargain with him to bring uh, Black Lightning or uh, King Jefferson Pierce back to life. Uh, and also his son, who was supposedly kill also killed by Superman's sister, Zara L. He's hoping uh, that Ra's al Ghul can bring both back to life. However, uh, Jefferson Pierce is beyond Ra's ability. It's like, he's got a giant hole in his chest. I can't repair what's not there. His heart is missing. So it seems as though Jacob will be coming back to life, but not uh, King Jefferson Pierce, but Ra's is asking for a hefty price. He wants the Titans. He says, I want the children, the Titans. Uh, and he says, you don't have to... Um, give them to me you just need to tell me where they are so how that's all going to play out i guess we'll have to see and we also see at the end kal-el goes to visit amazonia he's trying to prevent hippolyta and the amazons from teaming up with the kingdom of storms against the kingdom of elves it seems like there's a few people that realize john constantine being one alfred being one bruce being one harley quinn i think being one as well which is interesting um, there's a few people that realize that somebody is pulling the strings. Somebody's manipulating these kingdoms into war. And the people closest to it, the rulers of these kingdoms, don't seem to be able to, uh, to see that. Uh, and when Kal-El is surprisingly captured and held in Amazonia because magic, which he is vulnerable to, he meets somebody who is not necessarily an Amazon, I don't think. Uh, but is among them, and he gets to see Lois Lane. He meets Lois Lane. We see uh, this Dark Knights of Steel version of Lois Lane, which I, I thought was fantastic. And Tom Taylor very subtly gives us um, some chemistry between Lois and Clark, which, or Lois and Cal, I guess you'd say, uh, which is very much appreciated for a Superman fan like myself. 
where the story is going, still can't say. Um, so it, it is intriguing and it is compelling. Uh, we're halfway through here. Uh, this is issue six of 12. Uh, no Bruce, no Batman in this issue though, which I find to be interesting. So I guess we'll see how it plays out uh, in the subsequent issue. Uh, okay, I think we're up to the penultimate issue of Teen Titans Academy. This is number 14. I think we have one more issue to go. It's written by Tim Sheridan. Tom Derenick is the artist. Peter Pantazis does the color. Rob Lee on letters. This is an okay issue. We get um, the graduating class of 2022, which is uh, Red Arrow and, um, and Kid Flash. And I can never remember the character's name, the blue Teen Titan guy. Um, they're the, the only three that, that graduated this year. So um, uh, in the background of their graduation, you see that the, uh, the, the Titans Tower is being rebuilt after it was, uh, after it was blown up. So, yeah, not, not unexpected, I guess, but part of the, um, part of the problem with this book, and I've talked about it a lot, is that there's so many ideas. It's such a big story from, from Tim Sheridan. I don't think that he has, um, he has enough space to tell all the stories that he wants to tell or in the way that he wants to tell them. So I, it makes it a little tough to fit everything in uh, because again, I just don't think there's enough space to have all the stories he wants to tell. It's, it's like, there's no focus. Um, He's still, we still haven't gotten the, the real answer for who Red Arrow is or had that storyline wrap up. So I don't know. It, 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 I want to like it, but it feels like a lot of setup stuff. We already know that, <clears throat> excuse me, we already know that the, um, the, the future state storyline is not going to come to pass. Uh, so yeah, it, it, this, this whole, this whole run just never came together for me. Just didn't, wasn't focused enough, didn't know what it wanted to do. And one thing that I don't like about it. And we, again, we saw this in future state and this is one of the things of future state that we, that we have, um, that we still have happening is this mashup of Changeling and uh, Cyborg. Like, I just do not like that at all. In my mind, there's no reason to do that. You're diminishing both characters in a lot of ways. I, I, don't, I don't understand it at all. I, yeah, I don't like it. And so in this one, we, we do see that um, that they're struggling. They're struggling to, 
share the body to understand you know who they are and they don't want to be seen because i mean it is a good visual matchup i suppose in a lot of ways because uh it's it's garth so you got the green skin and the green hair and whatnot and then cyborg is the uh you know you still have the metal of, of cyborg and, and whatnot so raven is the only one that's even allowed to to go in and and talk to him doesn't really want to really be around anyone else. So yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because I think the series didn't know what it wanted to be. I can't lay all the blame at Tim Sheridan's feet because it could have been editorial. There's just, there's too many characters. There's too much story. And I sound like a broken record at this point. Because there are interesting aspects to it. Half this issue is what uh, Stitch and her friends, who, who she calls it, what, Teen Titans Dark or whatever that she calls them, and they're going to try to rescue Dane and Billy Batson, who no longer are on the Rock of Eternity, but instead are uh, trapped on Apocalypse for some reason. And we also have Chupacabra, who is... Uh, goes and meets his uncle Jorge, who's an artist. Jorge, George, George Perez. You know, it's a little heavy handed, but still cool to see. Uh, and what's going on with that storyline? No idea. Uh, and it especially helps to feel like George Perez when he's wearing the uh, classic Hawaiian shirt like George always used to wear. So um, anyway. I like the Young Justice Dark aspect. I like the regular Titans aspect. I like the Titan, the Titans Academy aspect of the story. There are so many interesting things going on, but again, it lacks focus. Just too many plates spinning. Um, so it makes it, it makes it uh, a little hard to focus. And I, yeah, I think one of the ways you could have given it more space was not to mash up Changeling and Cyborg. And how's that going to get resolved? Or is it? Or just at the end of Dark Crisis, they won't be mashed up anymore? I, I, I don't know. Teen Titans, they used to feel like, like the really up-and-coming team. You know, yeah, they're not the Justice League, but they're just one step down. Um, and, God, we, we don't even really get any Titan stories anymore. Um, their tangential stories uh, to, to Teen Titans Academy, which I get it. You want to focus on the younger characters and that's fine, but give the Titans their own book and then, you know, take them out of the pages of this book so you can use the pages of this book for what it needs to be for, which is for the new characters. So I don't know. It's so weird. Like Teen Titans was at one point DC's best-selling book, how far it's fallen. Um, so yeah, as far as the art by Tom Derenek, it's it's serviceable. I'm not a big fan of, of Derenek. Um, I don't, his style is very plain to me. Um, so yeah, just not my, not a, a personal favorite, um, but it, the art is fine. Nothing dynamic or exciting about it for me to, to really talk about. Uh, okay, let's move on. Next up, we have Joker number 14, which is the next to last issue. Written by James Tynan, 
Giuseppe Camicoli on pencils, Cam Smith on inks, Arif Prianto on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Man, I, I just cannot stress enough how fantastic the story is. I cannot wait till the 15th issue comes out because I'm immediately going to sit down and read this whole thing in one sitting. Um, there's a big time jump between this issue starting and the end of last issue. Uh, the end of last issue, we saw Bane show up and confront Vengeance, his you know, supposed daughter, who's a clone of him in a lot of ways. Um, this issue starts off with Jim Gordon being interrogated by Interpol. And it's through Jim's, Jim Gordon's eyes that we, that we get the recap of what, what happened uh, in the last issue. I like the way that, I mean, I'm not always a fan of not doing, not telling a story in linear uh, order um, because it feels so often like a gimmick. But what I love about Tynan using it here is that it allows us to get the context of Jim Gordon's emotions and feelings about everything that's happened because he's the one recapping what happened. He's the one telling it, either telling Interpol, you know, without telling them everything and then, you know, thinking back and ruminating on it himself. Like it's just done so fantastic. And Giuseppe Camoncoli's art, it's, it's understated. Uh, it's not as crazy and wild as Guillaume Marsh's art was at the beginning of the series, but I, I like this understatedness more in a way because it really allows the scripting to set the tone. Uh, you're not overwhelmed by the art uh, at, at times. Like I feel like we were in uh, the first half of the series, which was okay because it worked and it made it very dynamic and visually impactful. Um, but this feels like as we're getting to the end that it's winding down a little bit in terms of pacing and intensity, but still so interesting. And you know what it says about the Joker, what it says about Jim Gordon, what it says about Jim Gordon's relationship to Batman, like all of that just works on so many levels for me. Um, this is just, is just amazing. Uh, it's so good. It makes me really disappointed that James Tynan uh, is not continuing at DC. Um, not that his Batman run was my, my favorite, but he's such a talented writer that I want him writing something for DC. Um, but I don't begrudge him taking the opportunity to, to concentrate on uh, creator-owned stuff for now. Uh, there's also a backup story. It's written by Alex Packnadel. Uh, it does still star Punchline, which is, uh, which is interesting, but it leans more into some of the consequences of what she did during the, uh, the Joker War. Uh, Vasco Gregiv does the art, Rain Barreto on colors, Becca Carey on letters. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm not a fan of the Punchline character, but uh, seeing her have to deal with some consequences is an interesting hook, but at the end, she's totally let off the hook. Uh, and it gets flipped around with some of the people that she's tortured. Basically, this, this girl that she tortured, Madison, who apparently was a, a soldier 
at some point. Um, and she came back from whatever war she fought in uh, or was deployed at. And she, she couldn't laugh. She was super depressed and um, she had just been through so much trauma. The only way she could laugh was being subjected to the Joker toxin. So somehow in some way the Joker toxin has, um, it has enhanced her, I guess you'd say. And <laughs> she, she sets up sort of a, a meeting between herself and, uh, and Punchline so she can, she, she asks, she's like, uh, I wanna laugh, you know, do, give me another, give me another, you know, another one, another one. And then finally Punchline, Punchline realizes what she's asking for is more of this modified Joker toxin that Punchline created. Um, and she gives it to her and says, hey, come and look me up if you survive. Uh, so yeah, it is this idea of making Punchline have to suffer some consequences I liked. And then, yeah, she gets let off the hook. And instead we see more about what a horrible, horrible person she is. So no redeeming qualities. I guess that's what you want in a psychopathic villain, but I just don't find her very interesting. I didn't find the story particularly interesting either. It just wasn't for me. Uh, okay, up next we have Justice League 75. This is the death of the Justice League. I have a feeling we might do, uh, Rocky and I might do a spotlight on this later. Um, just to give it its proper weight. Uh, what I will say is it definitely sets up some interesting aspects of, uh, of Dark Crisis. The Rafa Sandoval pencils, I thought were okay, not as sharp as I've seen his art look in the past. Uh, and I think the inker, Jordi Tarragona, I think is who he typically works with. So I don't know if they were a little rushed or what exactly happened, but it, it wasn't quite as clean. Uh, Matt Herms does the colors, Josh Reed on letters. Um, as far as, you know, maybe if the rendering is, is not as clean uh, as I might've expected, that doesn't take away from the impact of the visuals or the storytelling or uh, the impact of the events or how powerful Pariah, who really is the villain of this story, uh, it, the art doesn't detract from that at all. And it ends up being a, a really interesting story uh, with, again, just tons of impact, tons of relevance. Uh, it reaches back and all the way back into Crisis on Infinite Earths with Pariah and what he's seen and gone through. And um, if anything, the, the dark crisis, there's anything about it that I'm not really excited about or isn't working for me 100%. It's just this idea that um, the great darkness itself, which is sort of this elemental force for evil, it, it's not, you know, you can't just point a finger and say, oh, that's the bad guy. You know what I mean? Like it's this, it's this force and it's recruited different villains like Ares and Neuron and Darkseid and they're all sort of overcome and they don't even have their own free will. Um, but it, I mean, when you think about 
great villains. Like, let's go back to Crisis on Infinite Earth. You, you, ha you had a focus for who the antagonist was. You know, you could look at the anti-monitor and go, yeah, that's the bad guy. He's cool. What are his machinations? What are his plans? That kind of thing. When it's something more nebulous, like the great darkness itself, it, you kind of lose some of that. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about the issue. Like I said, Rocky and I, I think we're going to do a spotlight and we'll talk in more detail about the, the story beats and what's, what goes down. Uh, I will also say, while the Justice League do die, it, maybe it's because it wasn't a secret and we've, been, we've known about it for so long. Um, I don't know, it wasn't as impactful. These deaths weren't as, some of them were more impactful than others. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see how it all plays out. And we'll get more into that when we do the uh, individual spotlight, so. Uh, okay, up next, last book I'm gonna talk about uh, on this podcast, because like I said, we'll do a different spotlight for the Justice League 75 that goes into more detail. And we'll also do a separate spotlight for Trial of the Amazons number two. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to get those spotlights out uh, today, maybe late today, um, but they won't be out at early in the morning like, uh, like this main uh, episode will be. But anyway, last book I'm gonna talk about in detail is Rogues number two. This is our third Joshua Williamson written book uh, this week. Uh, drawn by Leo Max, colored by Mateus Lopez and Jason Wordy, lettered by Hassan Atzman Elhau. This is the, the final rogues story uh, in terms of being a black label and out of continuity and Joshua Williamson's sort of last take on who the rogues are. Um, they're going to run a heist on Gorilla City, still the gold of Gorilla Grodd. When they get to Gorilla City, when they ultimately get there, we see that it's much more Wakandian to uh, borrow a term from across the street uh, from Marvel. It's this really advanced civilization, which it always has been in the past, but now it's, it's almost like a cross between Wakanda and Back to the Future. And what I mean by that is in Back to the Future 2, where Biff has taken over and he has Biff's casino and you know, there's affluent areas, but then there's also a lot of people that are struggling and there's ghettos and whatnot. That's sort of what Gorilla City has become. Yes, there's a lot of affluence and advanced technology and what have you, but Gorilla Grodd himself has become this Al Capone or Biff Tannen-like character who uh, runs everything like the, the kingpin of crime. And it's into this environment that these rogues uh, are thrust into and they still have their doubts uh, especially Len Snart Captain Cold who's you know pretending to have it all together but can they pull this off can they steal the gold can they escape um, and just when they think they have a plan to start moving forward and uh, and get their heist off the ground Len Captain Cold is confronted by Ape from Angel and Ape Sam Simeon who uh, gives him a pretty good beating and says, what are, you, what are you doing here? Now, Sam isn't necessarily a big fan of Gorilla Grodd because he sees the underside and the negatives of, of Gorilla Grodd being in charge. But for a lot of gorillas uh, and a lot of the people that live in Gorilla City, life's pretty good. 
Um, but again, it goes back to the idea of safety against freedom, right? There's not a lot of freedom. Uh, Garad rules with an, an iron fist uh, in a lot of ways. So can the rogues pull it off? Uh, is there even any antagonist in the story? Or I should say, is there any hero in the story? The rogues are the antagonists, but they're not necessarily good guys either. So is it, you know, the lesser of two evils that you root for? Uh, and I would not be surprised if not all the rogues make it out uh, alive. As far as the Leo Max art goes, really solid storytelling. Um, he has more of a, almost an indie comics feel in terms of his style. Um, but I think he does a, a good job with the transitions. Uh, he does a good, he breaks panels quite a bit and that helps to kind of um, heighten the impact of certain story beats. Uh, and he's also very good at facial expressions. Uh, also, I'll mention that the, the colors by Matias Lopez and Jason Wordy, uh, they're not really bright and vibrant, which also helps add to that indie comics feel. They're a little more muted, uh, which uh, also not, not only does it make it feel indie, it makes it feel a little more, more mature uh, in terms of being a sophisticated book. So I'm really enjoying this. Um, you know, when for the majority of the first issue, it felt like this was going to be pretty kind of traditional in terms of tone. Uh, and then we got to the last few pages of the first issue and Captain Cold kills a bunch of people. And you're like, oh, okay, this is going to go that direction and be much more serious, much more adult, um, really raising the stakes and giving us impact by showing us that Captain Cold and, and the rogues are, are willing to kill. Uh, but the other part of this is they still have their doubts. They're still, the, they're still at the end of the day, the rogues, right? Sometimes they can't get out of their own way. They have their insecurities. They have their hangups. They have their uh, self-doubt. Um, that's all still there. Uh, but they're all much more older, much more mature. And, and I think they all realize that this is sort of their last shot at the brass ring because their time is really running out. You know, they're old. They're run down. Um, and I appreciate the, the muted colors to kind of give us that sense, you know, that these guys in a lot of ways are washed up as the colors are washed out. So uh, I think it, that works uh, on that level as well. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it for, uh, for this week's spotlight. As I said, we'll do the, the trial of the Amazons as its own issue or own episode. Rather, we will also do a, uh, a more in-depth episode on the um on the death of the justice league because i know rocky's gonna want to talk about that uh apologies that he had some family stuff come up and wasn't able to join me for um for this whole issue um there are uh, a few other books that are coming out today in terms of trades and whatnot we have the batman fear state saga hardcover collects the whole fear state in one uh, there's a hardcover of the DC Pride book that came out last year, which was a runaway hit. Uh, also, there's a trade paperback of the entire run uh, of James Tynan's Talon, uh, which is interesting uh, because there's a lot of stuff going on right now that sort of ties in, especially in the Joker series. It ties in with what Tynan did in Talon, and that was his first standalone book. Um, so maybe with all the success that he's been having on independent stuff, 
DC's like, well, what do we have that has Titan's name on it that we haven't put out in a while? So that that's a great series. I'm a big fan of that series. Uh, and finally, there's a Hellblazer Rise and Fall trade paperback. That's the uh, Black Label Hellblazer book that was written by Tom Taylor with art by Derek Robinson. Uh, Robertson. That was a, a really fantastic story as well. Um, highly recommend that one if you haven't uh, had a chance to check it out. So anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Appreciate you guys listening. As always, uh, don't forget to uh, follow us and uh, reach out on social media and give us your thoughts on DC books today. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time.